We study billionaires, and this is episode 128 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson out in Seoul, South Korea. And folks, we have an incredible guest with us today. An absolute legend, to be honest with you. And his name is Edward Thorpe. And I want to start off by telling a quick story about Dr. Thorpe before we begin this episode. So about a year ago, we had a really famous author on our show. His name is Jack Schwager, and he's the author of the Market Wizard series books. And for anyone that's not familiar with these books, Jack Schwager goes around the world and interviews the smartest investors on the planet. Most of them are billionaires. And then he outlines the key aspects of their investing approach. So we had the honor of interviewing Jack Schwager on our show, like I said, about a year ago. And during that interview, one of the questions that I asked Jack was, you know, you've interviewed all these famous investors, these people like Ray Dalio, you name it, he's interviewed them. But I said, who is the person that you would say is the smartest person that you've ever talked to? And before I could even finish that sentence, Jack interrupted me and he says, oh, this one's easy. It's hands down Ed Thorpe. He said, the guy is on a completely different level than anyone else I've ever interviewed. And so, Dr. Thorpe, I wanted to start off this episode embarrassing you a little bit with that story, but also to be in all sincerity, just to tell our audience the company that we're with today and to let you know that we are so honored to be talking to you on our show. Thank you very much. And I didn't know that story. (laughs) All right. So if you guys want to know just a a couple of Dr. Thorpe's accomplishments, I'm going to run through three of them real fast before we start this conversation to give you some context of who we're dealing with here. So first, if you've ever heard somebody say that person's counting cards when you're talking about the game of blackjack, that whole idea was invented by Dr. Thorpe. He literally invented card counting. And so this all started whenever he wrote this world-renowned book, and the name of the book is Beat the Dealer. The book was written back in 1962, and it sold well over a million copies. And this book was pretty much the benchmark, and we're going to get into a little bit of this conversation with Dr. Thorpe during the show, but he figured out the mathematics of card counting and then wrote an entire book around it. In fact, there was a movie about Harvard students. It was called 21, the Hollywood movie about Harvard students using the techniques that Dr. Thorpe wrote about. And they went to Las Vegas and beat the odds of the casino. Uh, The next thing that I want to highlight about Dr. Thorpe that people might not know is that he is literally the Warren Buffett of options and derivatives. So chew on this fact. Dr. Thorpe had a positive return for 227 months out of 230 months trading options. So if we actually subscribe to the efficient market hypothesis, that means that there's a 50% odds of beating the market each month. This means that the chances of him being able to do that for 227 months out of 230 is nearly impossible. In fact, the odds are one out of 10 to the 63rd power 
Or in another way, you have a one in trillion times better chance of randomly selecting an atom on Earth than getting similar results. So that's the second thing that I want to highlight. And he went on to have an enormously successful trading career with returns in excess of 20% annually for 29 years, just to kind of give you a glimpse of how he performed in the market. Now, the last thing I want to highlight about Dr. Thorpe here, and I see he's, he's smiling and probably a little embarrassed because I keep talking about all of this, but I think it's really important that our audience knows this about you, Dr. Thorpe. The last thing that I want to highlight is that he was the first person to invent the first wearable computer. And now this is on display up at MIT, which is where he was a professor. And the computer was made because he had a theory that you could use Newtonian physics to predict where the ball might land on a game of roulette. And it turns out he was right. You actually can predict where the ball is going to land on roulette if you know the velocity that the speed's going. And he created a wearable computer that he put in his shoe that then told him in his ear, and remind you, this is back in the 60s that he did this, where the ball was going to land. So these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about in today's show, among many other things. These are all outlined in his new book that just came out this month. And the name of the book is A Man for All Markets. And as a person who read this book, I can't highly promote this enough to our audience because he goes into all the details on how he did these things, what he was thinking about whenever he created this. So Dr. Thorpe, fantastic book. Let's jump into the first question and get this interview going. So let's talk about the blackjack. I'm really curious to know how you harvested this idea of how you could maybe beat the odds of blackjack when everyone in the world had the exact opposite opinion that it could never be done. How did you go about thinking about this? Well, there were formulas, and if you could solve the formulas exactly, or the equations exactly, then you could figure out the precise probabilities of winning or losing given any collection of cards that uh, the deal was coming from, whether it was a full deck, any partial deck, or any number of decks or number of partial decks. So what I did was I had the computer take out four aces from the full deck. And then it told me what happened, that the edge shifted in favor of the casino by quite a lot, almost 3%. So I thought to myself, well, that's good news, because if I put an extra four aces in, probably it'll shift the other way, my favor, almost the same amount. So as soon as I saw that result, I knew that I had a winner. Then I went with the elevated the twos, threes, fours, and so on. The upshot was when all the smoke cleared, when the deck was rich in big cards, it shifted the edge in favor of the player. When it was rich in small cards, it shifted the edge in favor of the casino. So the player wanted small cards to come out of the deck rather than big cards. And for the casino, it was better for them if big cards were used up. So I developed a card counting system actually many card counting systems. Then the real work started, which was actually doing it. And so I spent about the next year, first with hand calculations, didn't get very far, the problem was too big. And then I went to MIT for my appointment there and I found I could use a high-speed computer at MIT. They had an IBM 704, it was the early days. Computers were scarce, but the good ones were starting to come online. This was a refrigerator-sized machine that served 30 New England universities, and that's where I was able to use the machine. So I spent almost a year teaching myself how to program and running uh, subroutines that I would uh, soon weld together into 
an overall program that would enable me to evaluate how the cards that were missing affected the game. So I'm curious, do you think that you would have been able to solve the math behind everything that you were trying to calculate back at the time point when this was occurring if you didn't have access to that computer and that computer lab? That's an interesting question. Um, At the time, I thought I needed to do as exact a calculation as I could. But as I learned more about the game, I realized that there were ways of approximating the problem that would have given me a pretty good solution and that I probably could have gotten that pretty good solution by hand. All right. So, Dr. Thorpe, one of the things that we constantly see as a theme on our show is the similarities that exist between gambling and investing with respect to probabilities. So Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett are super famous for talking about expected value. If they feel one decision is going to give them a 75% probability, another decision would give them a 25% probability. They're going to take the resultant of those probabilities and make an informed decision. But where I think a lot of people miss the other piece of that conversation is how it relates back to position size. So we had a really intelligent member of our community on Facebook that proposed this question. His name is Patrick Buchanan. And Patrick asked us to ask you, how can one apply the Kelly criterion to the stock market given the large array of potential outcomes and holding periods? So if you could kind of give our audience a little bit idea of what the Kelly criterion is and how it relates to those expected and probable outcomes, it'd be really beneficial for people. Okay, first a little about the Kelly criterion. The root idea is there's a trade-off between risk and return. This is well known to almost everybody in investing. But the question is, what is the trade-off? How much should you bet when you have an edge? And how much should you cut back to allow for the risk that is associated with your bet? And for a very simple situation, like tossing a a biased coin, suppose the coin has a 60% chance of coming out heads and a 40% chance of coming out tails. And you get to bet on heads or tails. Clearly, you'll be betting heads. But how much should you bet? This is uh, the basic problem that I faced in blackjack. It was very much like a coin toss, only the edge might have been uh, 52-48 or 51-49, a 2% or a 4% edge. How much should you bet? And the Kelly criterion is the solution to that problem and also a much wider collection. And in the simple coin tossing case, this is where you have an even money payoff. So in a 60-40 coin toss, you'll bet 20% of your bankroll. Uh, That, by the way, is fairly scary to people who actually do it because the pretty wide swings. And so if you only bet about half as much as what Kelly says, you end up growing at about three quarters the rate you would have if you'd done the whole thing. And your risk has got down to half, so you feel a lot better. So I generally recommend that people just bet half Kelly so they won't get scared. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. 
If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So I'm curious if there is a rule of thumb that you use when conducting that math that you just talked about. The math of the Kelly criterion are fairly involved if you have real-world situations with many possible payoffs and also with uncertainties. So people have done a lot of work on that, and they solved a lot of the problems explicitly. The best compendium of information, but it's very mathematical, is a book called The Kelly Capital Growth Investment Criterion, and the publisher is World Scientific. And it came out in 2010, about 700 pages uh, there were three editors, uh, myself and Leonard McLean and uh, uh, William Ziemba. So I would recommend that for math types who want to dig into this further. So I'm really excited that you brought that up because I was not aware of this book. And uh, the Kelly Criterion is something that I'm very interested in learning more about, specifically because um, in a book that we read probably two years ago, um, it was by Tony Robbins where he profiled a a bunch of different high profile investors. And one of the people that he interviewed was uh, David Swinson, who manages the Yale uh, endowment, which is a multi-billion dollar endowment. And um, the thing that I really remember about that interview with uh, David Swinson was that he talked about this idea that you can't time the market, but what you can adjust is your position size and to mitigate risk. And I really remembered how much he emphasized the importance of position size and I think for a lot of people listening to the show, um, if you're really wanting to understand mathematically 
what the most optimal position size is based on what expected values you expect to have. The Kelly criterion is what you really need to know and understand. And so knowing that you've written a comprehensive book about the Kelly criterion is really exciting to me. And I'm sure many of our audience members will be just as excited to hear that. Uh, I'd like to say one more thing about the Kelly criterion, criterion, which is it has a world scale applicability. If we look back into the various bubbles and disasters that we faced over the last century, most of them come from too much leverage. And uh, from the framework of the Kelly criterion, it means you're betting too much. And the Kelly criterion, when you work through the theory, shows you that if you bet too much consistently, you will be ruined uh, eventually. So the disasters that we've gone through, there was a crash of 1929 where people were buying stocks on 10% margin. There was the crash in 1987 where they were using portfolio insurance uh, and that tended to lever their portfolio in various curious ways. And then there was the long-term capital management uh, disaster in 1998 where they were uh, levering at uh, 30 to 1, sometimes even 100 to 1. And then our recent disaster in 2008-2009, banks were levered up like 33 to 1. And the banks who got that privilege, two of them are gone and three of them had to be bailed out by the taxpayers. So the Kelly criterion applies not only in the small for individual investors, but it applies in the large for nations. All right. So Dr. Thorpe, based on what you just said, I I have to ask this question because I know everyone in our audience that's listening to this interview is thinking the same thing. And that is, how do you see the market today? And when I say that, I, I emphasize a couple things. The first one is, just just this morning, I was reading a, a report or a, an article on uh, Larry Fink, who's the uh, CEO of BlackRock. His his company's a multi-trillion dollar kind of business handling uh, securities. And he says, you know, it's it's not looking good. It's actually looking pretty scary. And whenever I think about where we were in the 2008 crisis at the end of that credit cycle and where we are now at the top of the next credit cycle that we're in. Um, we have a, a lot more credit added to the system this time around. So whenever I look at, call it the stock market, and I think about systematic risk, which is you know when credit contracts on a macro scale, um, where, how do you think through position sizes and how, what's your expectation from this point forward, considering that we may be at the top of a credit cycle? How do you think through that? I think it might have been J.P. Morgan. Somebody asked this question. They said, uh, I'm worried about how high things are. Should I sell? So his, the advice he gave was sell down to the sleeping point. <laughs> I like that. So as far as asset classes now, it's it's always hard to know when you're in a bubble and if you are in a bubble, when it's going to pop. It's a lot like uh, the chaos theory image of dripping sand on, onto a little pile that's uh, shaped like a cone on the beach and the pile gets higher and higher. And then finally, suddenly there'll be a little avalanche, a pile of stuff will slide down. Or the same thing with real avalanches and snow, it piles up. You never know quite when it's going to go, but you know that if it keeps piling up, eventually something will trigger it and you'll have a disaster of some kind. Right now we have an attack on regulations that rein in banks from levering up and also that rein in the derivatives industry slightly from taking too much risk. And 
the more those regulations are removed, the more they, these guys get a chance to lever up, and the more we, the more chance we have of a rerun of 2008, 2009. Now they're not particularly worried though, because the taxpayers bailed them out last time for the most part, not everybody, but most of them, and they can probably count on that happening again since they basically control a, a, a wide swath of levers in government. They can make sure this is going to happen. So it's basically uh, heads the risk takers win, tails the public loses. All right. So I have another question for you. So one of the narratives that we hear a lot of very smart people talking about is the idea that the next financial event that occurs is going to be one induced by central bankers and a distrust of central banking. So uh, one of the narratives that we heard from a guy, uh, Jim Rickards, who's a New York Times bestselling author uh, that relates to a lot of this kind of stuff, is he said, you know, back in the late 90s, we had the we had the long term capital crisis, which, you know, potentially could have brought down the markets. The next credit cycle, we had the um, the banks that all needed bailed out. And he said, and the one that's coming is going to be the central banks that need bailed out. And he talks about this escalation because of more derivatives, more credit that's being added into the system each time we, we create another cycle. So my question is this, do you see the next cycle being induced by central banks? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I love that response. And and I guess I you know, this is this is a really profound moment for me to to hear you so quickly default to a 50% probability on something that uh I guess I was expecting you to really talk about more. And that's not something that we normally see. And that's not something that I normally do. And that's something that I can really learn a lot from is just how quickly you are able to come up with such an intelligent response to something that most would probably pontificate on. And I know you just provided such a a quick snapshot of time, but what I immediately think about based on the way you responded to that is something that we hear Warren Buffett talk a lot about, which is have a really strong understanding of what it is that you know versus what you don't know. And uh, I really liked the way that you just responded to that. Well, I read a good book uh, recently that fits my mindset on these things uh, quite well. It's by a psychologist at, I think it's University of Pennsylvania named Philip Tetlock. Um, and he has a co-author, a journalist named Dan Gardner. And this book is called Super Forecasting. So Tetlock has been working on the idea of whether people can forecast better than chance. And he found, as I have over a lifetime, that experts, so-called experts, don't really have much to tell us that's of value. They, they basically get a lot of press and a lot of media attention because they make strong, definite claims about one thing or another. But strong, definite claims are usually not the stuff of accurate predicting. We, we can only see the future very fuzzily. So there are a lot of possibilities. You have to kind of weigh them and think about them. And he found out that the people who go at things that way can make somewhat better predictions on average than chance and also better than the people who don't think that way. So the whole book is about this kind of thing. So my view is that on most things, we can speculate about lots of possibilities, but it's difficult 
to to get enough of an edge to actually put money down on it and expect to make a profit. But it's worth speculating anyhow because you can be ready at least psychologically for the bizarre range of things that might unfold. So I I might be reading into things too much, but you know, looking at the way you your facial expression and the way that you responded to that question and so quickly to say I don't know. I kind of got caught a glimpse that you wouldn't be surprised if that was the case that played out, but you just don't necessarily have enough information in order to confirm or deny, so that's why you're at the 50%. That's right. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. All right. I'd like to talk more about your investing career because even though we talked about Blackjack and how you made a name for yourself in the Blackjack space, you also have more than 30 years as an investor. And as Preston was saying at the beginning of the show, with an annual return of 20% over that time period. So could you tell us about the transition that you're making from being an author, being in academia, and into something that might be even more complex, working with options, warrants, and other financial instruments? Well, I'm not sure where to start there. I got interested in investing because 
I'd made some money gambling and I'd made some money from book royalties. And that meant that I, had, I now had, for the first time in my life, a certain amount of savings. So after having done badly in early investments, I said, I better put my mind to this thing. And by chance, I got a little book in the mail that I sent away, something called Common Stock Purchase Warrants. And those were basically options issued by companies. And they were traded over the counter. That as you basically, it was a telephone market. And as soon as I read about them, I realized that I could get rid of most of the risk in investing and still capture some extra return if those warrants weren't priced correctly. And there was every reason to think in a telephone market that they would not be priced correctly quite often. So that summer, I came out toward the end of the summer to the new UC Irvine campus. First day, I met an economist that was also a new professor there. He had written his thesis in 1962 under a very famous economist named Arthur Burns. His thesis was on common stock purchase warrants. So we hit it off right away with a big exchange of ideas, and we decided to meet every week to improve the theory and improve his investment returns. And then we kind of went our separate ways investing for people. We each had our little collection of people that invested in hedges. And we made about 20 or 25% a year. Finally, the dean of the graduate division of UCI, who was a National Academy of Sciences member in biology, he had become one of our investors. At that point, uh, in 1968, the markets were manic. Anyhow, he introduced me to Buffett, and we talked, played bridge, or we got together with our wives for dinner and so forth. Buffett was actually evaluating me for Gerard, but apparently things went well because Gerard uh, moved his money over to me. <laughs> so that, that put Buffett on my radar, and I realized that he was very smart, very dedicated, a long-term compounder. His life was securities. This guy understands long-term compounding. He's very smart. He's going to be maybe the richest guy in the United States one day. It turned out there were times when he was. So I then realized from him that a more efficient way to operate was to have a limited partnership. So I set up the first quantitative market-neutral hedge fund. This story about Warren Buffett really brings me to the next question. And it's an idea that Buffett has been really famous for. And you also write about that in your book. And that is the idea that the vast majority of investors should actually stick to ETFs instead of buying, for instance, individual securities, which might surprise a lot of people because that is what Warren Buffett did and why he is so financially successful. A lot of people in the value investing community are interested in hearing your thoughts on that too. Why do you think that the majority of investors should invest in ETFs? What I've found over 40 or 50 years of doing this, actually a little over 50 now, I, I realize, what I have found is that you can find situations that give you extra return, but it requires a, quite a bit of work to find them. And so they're really simplistically three groups of investors. There are investors who don't want to do a lot of work, they just want to as well as they can without doing a lot of work. And so People like that should buy indexes. And the reason is that index investors do better than maybe 90% of all the other investors. All the other investors are busy paying fees to investment advisors. Then the second group of investors are people who would like to learn more about securities, and they're entertained by following them and trying to think about them and analyze them. And I say to those people, you know, go ahead and do it. 
you may pay for your education, but you may have a good time in doing all this and you may learn something. And who knows, you may find some special, unusual things that are really pretty good. Then the last category are the guys who make the big money in the market, people who have usually a fairly large staff, large capital resources, and as often as not, can charge other people fees for doing it. And the fee chargers end up making most of the money, in my experience. So that in mind, don't expect as a small investor to be able to go out and make a big killing. All right. So Dr. Thorpe, this is a question that I'm really excited to ask you because we always ask each one of our guests to come on the show to tell us what the most influential book, and you can name more than one, that has shaped your life or influenced you in a special way. If you could share that with our audience, we'd appreciate it. The first book that really influenced me in a quantitative way was a book from the MIT Press edited by Paul Kuttner. came out in 1964 initially, and it's called The Random Character of Stock Prices. And it was a collection of quantitative type papers, maybe the very first quantitative papers that began appearing. And since I was thinking about the market in a quantitative way, that fit right in with my bent at the time and uh, had a considerable influence on me. In fact, they had early warrant models in there, which weren't a solution to the warrant and option problem, but they came close. And so that enabled me to actually figure out the option formula when I thought about what they'd done. So Dr. Thorpe, we can't thank you enough for your time. This was just fantastic to just meet you. I can honestly say I'm honored. Stig and I have been following you for a long time, for years at this point. And we really admire your contributions, especially from a mathematical standpoint of how to think and how to think about probabilities and just all those things. We can't thank you enough for that. And most importantly, we can't thank you for your precious time that you shared with us today and our audience. We are going to benefit from this tremendously. I do have one question I've got to ask you. When I was reading through your book, there's a picture of you in the back. And whenever I looked at the book, I said, oh, well, he's younger than I thought, because I know you've done all these things from back in the 1960s and such. And I'm looking at this picture of a person who looks like they're probably 55 years old. Well, when I read through the bio, you're 84 years old. Well, that's an interesting question. I actually, I had that question quite a few times and I did a poll uh, a couple of years ago. I go up to strangers like waitresses in restaurants or librarians or whatever. And I'd say, I have a question for you. I'll pay you a dollar, answer my question. And then it's about me, not about you. So don't worry. And if you get an answer that's fairly close, I'll pay you an extra $5. <laughs> so the question was, how old am I? And if you come within five years, you get the $5. And no one's ever collected. The, uh, the average guest is about between 55 and 60. The highest guess was from a very old lady. She guessed I was 72 <laughs> because everybody's 72 at least, aren't they? So what in the world is the secret? If you can give us one final tip for longevity, if you can give us one tip to look that good when we're at the same age as yourself. So what is it? Well, what is it that you do different? Well, let me just say first by answering that, that that picture is almost three months old. So I was young. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I've thought about this problem. I like being alive and doing things and learning things and enjoying people and traveling and so forth. So I want to be around as long as I can. So part of my thinking is exercise. So I ran marathons for 20 years or so, and that was a great fitness builder. 
And now I do a lot of walking and working out with a trainer in the gym. The second thing is what I eat. I try to eat in limited quantities and eat fairly healthy food most of the time. I don't eat healthy food all the time, but I do a fairly good job of it. I never smoked. I never played football because I didn't want to bang my head. Even as a little kid, I understood what concussions were and how you got them. Another thing is to get medical testing regularly so you find out something early and can fix it. Well, there you have it, folks. There's the really valuable information. So, Dr. Thorpe, we can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for coming on our show and talking with us today. I know everyone got a lot out of this and uh, we really do appreciate it. So everyone who's listening, the name of the book is A Man for All Markets. I have read it cover to cover and I can tell you it is a fantastic story that will give you plenty of insights. All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this episode of the Investors Podcast. We'll see each other again next week.